One of the dynamics that modern medicine has brought to us is a protocol that when people are dying, they are usually comforted with a drug-induced coma, essentially, in our era that we know. In my father's era, it was different, and in times past, often it was common to record the final words of people as they breathe their last. It's kind of interesting to notate these words. It's something that we don't so often hear anymore, as I referenced. It was interesting to me to read um, some last words of some famous people. George Washington, first president of the United States, December 14th, 1799. His final words. I die hard, but am not afraid to go. Oscar Wilde, the writer, November 30th, 1900. Either that wallpaper goes or I go. (laughs) I guess we found out who was in charge, didn't we? (laughs) Woodrow Wilson, 1927, when he passed away, three words. Not a bad testimony. I am ready. I am ready. Edgar Allan Poe, October 7th, 1849. Lord, help my poor soul. Stonewall Jackson, one of my favorite historical characters. Uh, Just a few hours following being shot by his own men at Chancellorsville. Let us cross over the river and sit in the shade of the trees. Here's an interesting statement from Charles Darwin, April 19th, 1882. I am not the least afraid to die. Finally, Bing Crosby, singer, actor, October 14th, 1977. That was a great game of golf, fellers. This morning, we are going to look at in depth in Genesis chapter 49, and I invite you to turn there, the final words of a dying man. I don't mean to have um, a dark topic this morning at all. I don't think you'll find it that way. It is a very serious topic, of course. But know that as we've gone through the story of Genesis, we are now in chapter 49, Chapter 50 is right there, and that's where the book ends. So it's a story, and it's a narrative, and it's people's lives. And so we are at the end, as you know, if you were here last week, of the life of Jacob as his son Joseph, his two grandsons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, have been standing at his bedside. And when we read chapter 49, we come to Joseph's final words. He knows that he's going to die. He is lying on his deathbed. He is a very old man. And he has had a sense for some time that we we know from chapter 48 and the end of chapter 47, you don't have to look there, that he knew he was going to die. He had called Joseph in. He had spoken personally with Joseph, remember? And he had said, make sure that my bones get buried next to my father's in Canaan. It was a statement of faith, believing with all of his heart that 
that God's covenantal promise was true. And he did not want to be left cradled there in the heart of Egypt where God's people were protected for about 400 years in the midst of a a pagan land where really Egypt ended up protecting them and they grew strong into a nation there. And from this time until the children of Israel were entered the promised land, 400 years will pass. And so Jacob is about to breathe his last. And what happens in chapter 49 is he's going to bring in all 12 of his sons. And what chapter 49 is, is basically, it is a prophetic pronouncement and blessing of the old man Jacob upon his 12 sons while he's on his deathbed. And you'll see at the end of the chapter, if we can get there, you'll see that he then tucks his feet back up in his bed and he breathes his last. I see, we're talking about the last 10 minutes of his life. It's really in kind of an interesting passage and... It's a little bit strange, actually, and, and even some parts of it, uh, Bible interpreters struggle to understand exactly what Jacob meant in his prophetic pronouncements, most of which are considered blessings. There are some that uh, some Bible students call anti-blessings. You'll see that in a minute. They're really curses. But I thought it might be helpful for us to understand the mindset of why this is important and what happens in the Eastern mind a little bit. If you're like me, it's likely that many of you in this room don't even know the name of your great-grandfather. I know my father's name, Eugene. My grandfather's name, Henry. We called him Hank, or people did. I called him Grandpa. And I have no idea from there on. I have no idea what my forefather's names are where they lived or what they did. My older brother probably knows a little bit. Um, And some of you are into genealogical research. That's been popular. But that would never be the case in the Eastern mind. It was very important, and especially in Israel of old, when God's people were developing as a nation, it was very important who you were and, and who your forefather was. Let's just remind ourselves, and I've been doing this, but some of you need to remember that back in Genesis chapter 15... When Abram, his name wasn't Abraham yet, had heard from God that he was going to make out of him a great nation, he was getting old. He and Sarai had a problem, didn't they? They were beyond childbearing years. And Abram looked up one night at God and he said, Okay, if you're going to make a great nation out of me, I guess I'm going to have to do it through my servant Eleazar. Remember that? And that was culturally acceptable that Eleazar could, in a sense, be adopted by him in his old age and he could inherit everything that was Abraham's, including his blessing, and he could live out the the objectives of Abraham's life. And God spoke to Abraham and he said, step outside your tent, look up at the stars and see how many there are. Abram, I'm telling you, from your own flesh and blood will come a nation that is more than the stars of the sky. And it says in Genesis chapter 15, about verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness right there. That was the moment of Abraham's salvation by faith in God, believing the word. He had no idea how it was going to happen. He knew that his body was as good as dead, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 4. And though his body was beyond childbearing and he had a shriveled up old granny wife, He believed that from his loins would spring a family through whom God would make a great nation through whom the world would be blessed. Well, you remember the story, don't you? Another 10, 12 years go by 
And Abraham lapsed in faith a little bit. And his wife Sarai didn't get pregnant. He got her handmaid pregnant. He had a son named Ishmael. All right? Been having trouble with the Ishmaelites ever since. All right? Finally, he had to kick them out. Two wives in the same house didn't work out well for him. And he has a son. God does a miraculous work. And Sarah, in her old age, has Isaac. Remember? And then Isaac has a son, two sons, named Esau and Jacob. Esau was the red hairy one, who was the older son, and Jacob was the younger son. He's the one who, along with his mother, deceived his elderly father, Isaac, and he stole the birthright and deceived his father into blessing him. The plan of God, no doubt, all along, but not the mechanism of God to receive the blessing. And the younger son receives the place, in place of the older son, the blessing of God. Okay, you with me? Grandpa Abram, in his old age, has Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have two boys, twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the one through whom God is going to fulfill this promise to have this nation that's like the stars of the sky. And Jacob, he goes running away in fear from his brother Esau, you'll recall, and ends up in a faraway land and runs into a guy named Laban who has a beautiful daughter named Rachel. He works seven years for Rachel, gets married, and his father-in-law schnookers him, remember, and into the honeymoon tent puts the older daughter Leah instead of the younger daughter Rachel. He wakes up on the day after his wedding. Lo and behold, he has the oldest daughter, the one with the sad eyes, Leah, and now with the sad heart because her husband doesn't love her. Okay, now this is where you have to pay attention because when we read the story and Jacob's on his deathbed, all right, the first names that he's going to go through, the first five or six names are the boys that he and Leah had then. He didn't love Leah. Leah stops bearing children. She gives him, well, his beloved was her younger sister, Rachel. And finally he worked and he got Rachel for a wife, but Rachel wouldn't have children, so Rachel gives her her handmaid, that's Zilpah, and he has some children with Zilpah. And then Leah stops having children, and she gives, her her hand, gives him her handmaid for a wife, Bilhah, and they have babies. So he's going to have like six, two, two, and two for 12 sons. You got it? Okay, now what's, in, what's interesting about this is we don't pay attention to our genealogy much or that kind of thing. But do you know that when it comes to uh, moving into the promised land of Canaan, God promised them in Genesis 15, God told Abram, he said, it's going to be 400 more years before you go because, because the sin of the Amalekites isn't filled up yet. In other words, I've got 400 more years of patience with the, with the land dwellers in Canaan, but after 400 years, if they don't repent and turn around, then the sword of my wrath is coming to them, and then you can have them. That's four more generations, he told Moses. In the meantime, he said, you and your people, as they grow into a great nation, are going to be in a foreign land. That would be Egypt. That's where Joseph's been. And you're going to be under great oppression and slavery. All right? And so that's what happens. But they're not a great people right now. They're just Jacob, old man on the edge of his bed, ready to die. His 12 sons, all right? And we know that Ephraim and Manasseh have been entered into the picture here, all right? And uh, that's Joseph's two sons. And through these sons, then, the families are going to really take off and grow. 
So you know what happens is, 400 years from now, do you remember a guy named Moses? Sure you do. A little baby in a basket in the Nile River. This is the first story of, in Exodus, the next book. All right? Moses is going to lead the people out of, out of Egypt. They're going to become wealthy. God told Abraham that clear back in, in Genesis 15. With great wealth and treasure, you're going to come out of the land of where you've been oppressed. And you're going to enter my promised land. And so Moses does that. And do you remember the first thing Moses does? He picks out 12 guys to go spy out the land. Remember? It's one of your favorite Sunday school stories, isn't it? And these 12 guys. Why are there 12 guys? There's 12 guys because they picked one from every tribe, the descendants of these 12 sons. And from now on, your Old Testament is always characterized by what tribe you came from. These 12 sons of Jacob, we call Abram, Abraham, he changes his name, God does. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we call them the patriarchs. After this, everything kind of gets jumbled up. Do you remember what happened? Moses sends in the 12 spies. They come back. They're impressed with the giants of the land. They're carrying grape gobs of grapes on poles. It's such a fruitful land. They said the animals are crazy. The people are giants. It's a scary land. And 10 of them said, no way. Let's not go there. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. They didn't go. The people grumbled. They disobey. And for how many years do they wander around the wilderness? 40. For that generation to die off, Moses gets to go up on the mountain, see it from a distance before he dies. Who's the next leader to take him in? Joshua. Okay? All this makes sense in that. Now, when you start reading your Bible now, if you would look in Joshua, the first part of the chapter is when Joshua, the book of Joshua leads him across the river, and there's Jericho. Joshua fought the battles of Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down. Then they're, then they're proud and arrogant, and then they... Achan lies and steals, and then they get routed at Ai, a little city, and finally they conquer the land, and guess what the whole last part of the book of Joshua is about? When you read your Bible, you always like to skim through this stuff, because it's kind of boring, but it's, it's important detail to them. All of these 12 sons and their descendants are all tribes now, and the whole last half of the book of Joshua is... The land, the promised land that God told Abram way back in Genesis 15 that they would inhabit in 400 years. Now in Joshua, there they are. And guess what they do? Guess how they divide up the land? According to the sons, these 12 sons. It's everywhere. It's even interesting when you look through your Bible and we get to the way way at the end of the story and we go to Revelation chapter 7. And we're in the Great Tribulation. This is the stuff with the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and 666. And God, one more time, wants to, wants to draw people unto himself. And he wants to let the world know the truth. And he puts out 144,000 evangelists. Guess what? 12,000 of them from where? Each of the 12 tribes. There's one tribe missing, by the way. It's kind of interesting. That's in Revelation chapter 7. So these tribes, these Israelite nations, these groups of people have a story as history unfolds all throughout our Bible, another thing that, you, that regularly happens is when a new Bible character comes up, um, uh, like um, Moses, for example, it'll say he's from the tribe of Levi. It'll say, um, uh, you get to the book of Ju- Judges, and um, you get to uh, Samson. Uh, he's a Danite. He's from the tribe of Dan. Uh, 
It'll always say which tribe they're from. What's interesting about all this, and the reason I wanted to take time to talk about that is, today, as Jacob sits on the side of his bed and makes these prophetic announcements and blessings and cursings on his son, they are, they are prophetic in the sense that you will see in his children, these men today, next to Jacob's bed, will never see the results of it. But their descendants do. And it's just kind of interesting. And that kind of puts it in context. The things that Jacob is going to say today will unfold and be lived out all through Bible history. Even to where the tribe of Judah, he'll say, you're going to be the reigning power. And guess what? David, Solomon, they're from the tribe of Judah. And that kind of thing. It's really interesting. So let's read. There's a couple more bites of information that we need to know. We're in Genesis chapter 49. Joseph has been at his bedside. Ephraim and Manasseh have been there. And evidently, while they were talking to Jacob, the word has gone out and all 12 of the brothers have gathered now. All right. And there they are outside of his room. And when he's done talking to Joseph in chapter 48... The beginning of 49, then he calls all 12 of the brothers. And let's read verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons. Okay, so that's all 12 of these sons from four different wives. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. The first thing I want to point out in that verse 1 that will help you also in your imagination, okay? Old man about to die sitting up on the edge of his bed, mustering his final strength. He knows he's going to die. He wants to speak important words to his sons. Twelve big old grown men. It's interesting to think, Reuben, the oldest, is around 100 years old. Big old bushy gray beard, and they're all standing there. First thing you need to picture is that this is a public thing. He's going to go down the line with these guys according to their family group, according to who their mother was. He doesn't have them in exact chronological order, but he has them in, in clumps with their, who their mother was when he speaks. But they're all right there, and some of it's pretty in-your-face and, and, and humiliating. And there he is. So it was a very public proclamation with all 12 of them right there, all right? I cannot resist telling you about a commercial that is kind of my favorite commercial right now. This, I was picturing this, this final pronouncement, and I don't know if it's Comcast or who it is, but they're all in the lawyer's office, and they're reading the will, and the one, uh, you know, the one high-maintenance daughter or whatever, she's sitting there, and she gets like the island and the yacht and the bank accounts. And then this, this, like, the black sheep's son, he's got a suit on, but his tie's crooked. And the lawyer reads the will, and, it's, and he says, and you get, I don't know if it's Netflix or some movie channel on, I don't know what the commercial is. Whatever it is, doesn't, direct TV. And, and, he's, and so the guy reads out his final statement, and he says, and to my son or whoever it is, you get the direct TV with all the movies. And the guy starts, <laughs> Some of these guys, they could go, Others of the guys just like, bam. Everybody's sitting around. The pronouncement's being made. It's just crazy. It's very public. Secondly, you need to know that it's very prophetic. These are prophetic statements. They're things that are going to happen in the future. And the third thing you need to know, you might have noticed in your Bible, especially if you have a New American Standard or an NIV, ESV, some of the more newer translations, when they change the writing style into poetry, you notice that it shows on the printed page. They changed the format of the printing layout. 
and it's poetic. Well, what do we get from that? Probably that Jacob has been thinking about this for quite some time. He has, uh, he's been lying on his deathbed. He's put these thoughts together in his head and he, he kind of has it together. Now, we also know that he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so these words, guided by the Holy Spirit, now come out in a very public gathering. They are prophetic, things that will happen in the days to come. And it's in a poetic format, so it's something that he has thought carefully about and that he's going to do. I want to give you five hooks on which to hang your thoughts as we work through this relatively strange chapter in a way. Five hooks as we read through that will just kind of help maybe frame your thoughts or hook your thoughts on. You can kind of see what's going on. So there they are, Jacob at his bedside. Let's look down at the text again. And he says, gather around so that I, will, so that I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Number one, he immediately addresses, number one, our first hook, the rebellion of Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, verse 3. My might and, my, and the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Okay? He starts out kind of positive. That's the way a father thinks about his firstborn son. I held you in my arms and you represented everything that was me. And I, I pictured you growing up strong and being a fine young man. But immediately the tone changes, verse 4. But you are, you are turbulent. You are, you are rushing. You are out of control as the waters. You will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed and onto my couch and you defiled it. What's he talking about? You remember that part of the story? Somewhere along the line in Reuben's adulthood, we had this story a number of weeks ago. Reuben, the firstborn, probably less out of a sexual drive and more out of some kind of a, a, a power move, kind of a showing his father that you can't control me and that I can rule this family. Some of that brought about at that time in his life from the passivity of the way Jacob fathered his boys. And Reuben does something. He goes in to one of his father's wives, Bilhah, and he sleeps with her. He basically makes her into a living widow. It's a control move. It isolates her. His father will never go in. Perhaps some Bible students think that it was one way that he was trying to help elevate his mother Leah so there was less competition in the household and that Leah, who was unloved, would be paid more attention Regardless, it was a moral failure. It was incredibly dishonoring to his father. It was sinful disrespect. It was arrogant. It was proud. It was trying to show the world that, that he could control his father. And here on his deathbed, old Jacob looks at the oldest son right in front of everybody and he says, you went and laid on the couch with my wife and therefore... Though you could have excelled, you will, verse 4, no longer excel. You defiled it. You defiled the couch. I'm going to guess that it was really, really quiet in that room. And that the, the pulse and the blood pressure of the other boys began to tick up. What is he going to say about me? 
First of all, we see the rebellion of Reuben. The next thing we see is the rage of Simeon and Levi. The rage of Simeon and Levi. Look what he says. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Okay, these are all the sons of Leah here. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger. And they have hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. These men were known as very angry, very rebellious, very wild, very violent men. I will scatter them, he says, in Jacob, and disperse them in Israel. They're going to be scattered. What's he mean? Well, when you notice, it's a prophetic statement. They're going to be scattered. Simeon and Levi. Do you know that in history future, from that moment at his bedside, Simeon never gets, a, gets an allotment of the land. Simeon is assimilated by everybody else and even some of the foreign countries that capture part of them. Levi, interesting enough, by God and his grace, the children of Levi become who? They become the priests. Okay? They become the religious leaders. And they are not given an allotment of the land. They are to be given a portion of everybody else's um, produce. And so true to form and true to this prophetic statement, Simeon and Levi never have a real place to live in the future. You remember what that story was about? This I call the rage of Simeon and Levi. Again, it was brought on partially by the passivity of Father Jacob. Remember one day he waited until the boys came in from the fields? This is chapter 34 of Genesis, but you don't have to go there. They had a sister named Dinah. Remember, Dinah had been raped by a Shechemite boy. Jacob didn't do anything about it. And when all these boys came in from working in the fields and he told them, it says they were furious. And they wanted their father to do something about it. In their gut, they knew that justice had to take place. Dinah was one of their sisters. Her mother was Leah. These two boys, Simeon and Levi, strapped on their swords after they had made a deal with the Shechemites. They went in, got them to make a compromise agreement based on uh, a deal of commerce and trading. But he said, if we're going to deal with you, you all need to get circumcised because that's our tradition and our culture. And so they talked the whole tribe of all the males in the Shechemite group to become circumcised. And then it says on the third day when they were still sore, Levi and Simeon strapped on their swords and went in and slaughtered and killed every male of the Shechemites. The point is it was genocide. It was anger. It wasn't justice. They didn't deal just with the guy who had sinned against them. They wiped out all of them. And Jacob says, you have disregard for human life. You are angry, vicious, violent young men and you will never have a land in which to live. They were cruel. It was senseless brutality. They were even noted, it's not even in the story in chapter 34, that they hamstrung the oxen. Nobody hamstrung oxen. You hamstring the horses so that you can't, the enemy can't re reseat his army. He can't rise up again in strength with his army. They went through and damaged the animals even, just out of brutality and bloodlust and cruelty. And there it is. That's the rebellion of Reuben, the rage of Simeon and Levi. Number three, I call the rebound of Judah. The rebound of Judah. I'll show you what I mean in a minute. Because if you're thinking and you know the story, you have to wonder 
Why did Judah become blessed? Okay, so far, three sons, three anti-blessings, really just curses. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise... Judah, your brothers will praise you. Don't you see Judah just going, man, you know, he's like, okay, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, I'm next. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Poetic language for a king sitting on his throne, holding the rod of power, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That's a statement prophetically about our Lord Jesus. That's like the beginning of the gospel here, in addition to the gospel going on. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It's like he's saying, you are going to be so blessed in every way that you're going to have, the, you're going to have all the power. Notice that it says he had his enemy by the, the, by the neck. When you've got somebody by the neck, you've got him in control. You're going to be powerful over your enemies. He said... And I promise you, you're going to be the one that's going to have the throne. You're going to have much of the rulership. And indeed, David, Solomon, all from the tribe of Judah, others as well. Great prosperity. You're just going to be blessed, Judah. My hand's going to be upon you. Your hand, you're going to be blessed. And the idea of washing their clothes, their garments in wine, and and washing your robes in the blood of grapes, it's the idea that, that they are so wealthy and so blessed that they don't even need water. They can just use wine. They don't even have to just hold wine for a beverage. They can use it in a utilitarian way, I take that to mean. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. I think it's kind of like the children at Lake Wobegon. They're all handsome and beautiful and good looking. They're just blessed. And so Judah is blessed of the Lord. You have to ask yourself, why did that happen? How did Judah get away with a blessing? Because you know the story of Judah, right? Remember, we started into the story of Joseph in chapter 37, and then in a very interruptive and and unsmooth way, just a, a parenthesis, comes chapter 38, and it's the whole story of Judah. And he's not a very likable character. You remember that he had three sons, the most famous of which is the name Onan. Remember, his oldest son married and he died because they were wicked, it says. He said his sons were so wicked that God took their life. What's that say about the father? Something. Not that we can totally control our children, that's for sure. But the culture demanded and tradition demanded and decency demanded that the next son be given to the oldest daughter-in-law who is now a widow, a very young woman, and that she have children with him so that she would not have the, the, the curse of childlessness upon her in this culture. And that son wouldn't cooperate. God kills him. Then the third son, he, he neglects. He doesn't want three sons dead, so he lets him go. This is a woman named Tamar. So she does something. At the time of year when they're shearing sheep, you can read the story yourself. All the men were going to be going down this one way. She dresses like a prostitute. And she gets old Judah. 
Papa Bear. He comes along and he goes into the tent with her and he lays with her and he gets her pregnant. She keeps his arm rings and his staff for for documentation of who it was. He finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He's such an unlikable rascal. He's immoral. He's unfaithful. And then he's duplicitous because he finds out that she's pregnant. And then he demands that they find whoever it is and kill him and kill her too. And she brings the rings and the staff and says, um, it's who owns these. And it's him. And so you say, how come Judah? How come Judah gets a blessing? Well, one thing, it's, it's the sovereignty of God and God uses broken things, doesn't he? First Corinthians 1 says, God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He takes the weak things of the world to bring down the mighty. But you know what I think is there's some evidence that Judah, and it's even in chapter 38, verse 26, you look at it there later, that when he is confronted, he is immediately shamed and humiliated and he admits that he is unrighteous and that she was more righteous than he and that he was wrong. In essence, he repents of it. You'll see later, years later, when they, those boys all come down into Egypt and Joseph is there and they don't know that Joseph is their younger brother that they sold into slavery and uh, they're frightened and they're trying to get food And Joseph's playing a few mind games with him. And one of the things he does is he he wants him to go get Benjamin and bring him down there. And Judah's the one who says, no, you can't do that. It'll kill my father. He's the one that intercedes for his father. They finally get Benjamin down there and and Joseph's going to lock him up and he's testing the hearts of his brothers. And who's the one that's speaking up? Who's the one that's tearing his coat and saying, no, put me in jail, not Benjamin. You see a repentant heart. You see a transformed life. You see a man who cares deeply about his father, who cares deeply about his younger brother. Something has changed inside of Judah. The old is evidently gone and the new has come. And God says, I'll bless you. You'll have the power Ultimately, Revelation chapter 5 says what? He's the Lion of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ. We must go quickly and we can do it easily by just making number four hook the rest of the brothers. We have the rebellion of Reuben, the rage of Simeon and Levi, the rebound. See, Judah rebounded. He acknowledged his sin with humility and he took full responsibility He offered himself as a substitute, the rebound of Judah. Now number four, as we read on, the rest of the brothers. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships, verse 13. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Let's just stop there and comment briefly. This is what I mean by Bible students have, through the years, studied these passages and tried to see their fulfillment. One of the things you see in Zebulun, it says, he will live by the seashore and will become a haven for ships. That's one of the puzzling verses of this passage that nobody can really figure out. One Bible commentary that I read states very emphatically that that is an unfulfilled prophecy. It has yet to take place. That's very possible. See, when they divided the land, remember when Joshua, Moses goes up on the mountain, gets to see the land, dies, God takes him. And Joshua takes the people across the river into the promised land and divides it up. All right. 
when they give Zebulun his property, there's no seashore. He doesn't live on the seashore. When you track history and document where his land was, some Bible commentaries speculate that the fact is he was between two bodies of water um, and that they were had seaports on both sides of him and that, that there was like a... a, a a transcontinental highway there, that they're the ones who did a lot of the commerce dealing and that they facilitated the trading. I have no idea. Uh, that's just the way it is. How that nuance came through, comes through. Issachar, look what it says about Issachar. A raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. So he's, I guess he's a big tough guy and he's got strength, but he likes to lay around And when he sees how good is his resting place, this is a nice place to live. And how pleasant is his land, okay, that's in Canaan, where he's got his divided portion. It says he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. The point here is, and this is documented in history future here from this bedside moment, that when Issachar gets his portion of the land, instead of following through with God's command through Joshua and other leaders to purge the land of the pagans that are there and to take over the land, they are so comfortable in the land that they subject themselves to slavery just to get to live. Easier just to live here as a servant than it is to take care of the land. And that's what happened. Dan, verse 16, Dan will provide justice for his people. That's an interesting statement. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. Bible students look at that prophecy and they see that Dan's allotment of the land was way north in Israel. And one of the things were that, that enemy countries of the of the nation of Israel would come down and Dan became a mighty warrior. They were strong people. Samson is an example. And so they, they held back the enemy. But then notice the next phrase. It's like he says, so that its rider tumbles backward, talking about Dan's blessing or prophecy. And then look at the one line, verse 18, just a one-liner. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. It's kind of interesting. The Bible students say, well, what was Jacob meaning there? What did he mean? And others speculate that the imagery of the serpent in the prophecy of Dan has to do with the fact that if you study history, and it's interesting, it's, it's really kind of a whole message in itself, where you can look up that the Danites were key tribal people of the Israelite nation to bring in idolatrous worship. And as a result, God cursed them And Bible students speculate that the reason Dan is not listed among the 144,000 witnesses of the 12 tribes there, he's out, Levi's out, and Joseph's two boys are inserted in that list of the 144,000 witnesses. You don't hear of Dan anymore. And in Deuteronomy, God said specifically, if you worship other gods and if you're idolatrous and if you practice sorcery, I'm going to obliterate you and no one will ever know of you again. And by the time they're listed in the witnesses of 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, there is no Dan. And some Bible students speculate that it's because the Danites were key to to the idolatry that comes into Israel in later years under their wicked kings. 
I look for your deliverance, O Lord. And that, that Jacob says that because he knows only the Lord can deliver them. Gad, verse 19. This is a son of Zilpah. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders and he will attack them at their heels. It is what it is. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Asher is another of Zilpah's sons. The other one. Asher's food will be rich and he will provide delicacies fit for a king. He evidently loved good food and they were good cooks. Naphtali is a doe set free. This is one of Bilhah's sons that bears bears beautiful fawns. The Hebrew is obscure and some of your translations might say Naphtali is a doe set free that utters beautiful words kind of thing. And Bible students don't, don't know exactly what that means exactly. Deborah the judge was from the tribe of Naphtali. And then he gets to number five, our fifth hook. Okay, we've seen the rebellion of Reuben. We've seen the rage of Simeon and Levi and the results. We've seen the rebound of Judah, the rest of the brothers, and then finally the riches of Joseph. And then he'll end with Benjamin Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Just poetic expression for flourishing. With bitterness, 23, archers attacked him. They shot him with hostility. Jacob, right here in front of the boys, is in poetic language talking about the attack of his brothers on him. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock, of Israel. Notice five names of God. First of all, because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd. First time shepherd is used as a name of God in the Bible. The rock, also the first time that name for God is used. Because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty Shaddai, who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and the womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. It's difficult to discern what, God's, what God, through Jacob, was saying about Joseph. Joseph clearly was blessed in Egypt. He was second in command. And his tribe after him is blessed in a number of ways. And Ephraim and Manasseh carry his blessing, take, kind of take his place in the lineup and have received that special blessing from Grandpa Jacob. But it's just kind of interesting because it seems to be more physical blessing than spiritual blessing. And Joseph is not the one through whom Jesus comes. Judah is. Judah, the son of Leah, the sad-eyed, sad-hearted wife. And so it is what it is, and Joseph is certainly blessed, and his name to this day is a name of blessing, isn't it? We name our sons Joseph, right? We don't name our sons Agag. We don't name our sons Potiphar. We name our sons Joseph. He's blessed. Benjamin is going to be cruel, evidently, and Benjamin and his descendants a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, verse 28. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So these were appropriate words for each of these boys.
He's now going to just tell them that he's going to be gathered to his fathers. He puts his feet up on his bed and he breathes his last right there in front of him. His final 10, 12 minutes of words right here. Well, we must make a brief application and, and then go home. Bio or not in Africa, or I could just keep going, couldn't I? These Americans will get up and walk out. Will you listen a couple more minutes briefly, please, so we can just bring this to conclusion? Now, what do we apply here to our lives? What is this all about? A little bit of Bible history, some, some obscure prophecies that Bible students debate how they became fulfilled through the tribes, kind of a little bit better understanding of the placement of the 12 tribes of Israel. What do you do with this stuff? Let me just say two things by way of application, okay? Number one, I think it's clear from this passage, and particularly from our first three sons, Reuben, Levi, and Simeon, that the sins and failures of the past may limit God's plan of blessing for my life. I think that it's clear to see that Reuben and Simeon and Levi received the anti-blessing because of sins and failures in their past that were never appropriately dealt with. I was thinking of some other passages in Scripture. I was thinking of of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. How many times in the counseling study do I look across my desk and I don't say it, but I think it. And I think to myself, if you would have just obeyed your parents and your teachers, you wouldn't be in your pastor's study today. You see, sins and failures of the past will remove God's hand of blessing for the future if not appropriately dealt with. I was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and a church in chaos and the Apostle Paul writing to Corinthian believers and says, you do realize, don't you, that because of the hardness of your heart and the inappropriate way that you have gathered around the Lord's table and supper and communion that some of you have died, you've been to the funerals of your brothers and sisters that God has taken out because of their, their hard hearts. I take it to be believers in Christ that God removed his blessing and even cut off their lives because of sins and failures not dealt with. I think of Proverbs chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Proverbs 5, 7 through 14. And he says there, you leave, you leave that adulterous woman alone. You leave that married woman with the, with the smooth words. You leave her alone because you go down that path, you will never recover. You will never make it. You will never get back to your, your former standing. You see, sins and failures of the past, when inappropriately dealt with, can become a huge, huge limit to us for God's blessing. They become a lid on God's blessing. The second thing, is this, though. The sins and failures of my past do not have to define my future. The sins and failures of the past do not have to define my future. That's Judah, isn't it? 
The first point was Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. The second point here is Judah. Do you remember back to that church in Corinth that I just referenced about people dying at the communion table? In chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is on them big because they're taking each other to court and they hate each other and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he goes down the line and he talks about all these sinful people that will never inherit the kingdom of God. Liars and sexually immoral and swindlers and cheats. And he said, those people... He said, don't be like them. That's the people of the world. And he says, and that's what some of you were. You used to be that. You're not that anymore. By the grace of God, you have the Spirit of God, and you're forgiven, and you're washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've come to the cross. You've laid down your backpack full of sin. You've admitted before a holy God that you are totally unworthy of His grace. You recognize That even in our sin, God loved us so much, He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. Amen. And out of His love and His kindness, He did for me what I could not do for myself. He took away the burden of my sin, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus Christ gave me His righteousness through God's marvelous grace. And now I can stand before God just. He doesn't see me in my sinfulness He sees the righteousness of Christ in me. How about it? Are you defined by the sin of your past? Do you have a huge lid on your life because of sin and failures of the past? Listen, God has a remarkable way of taking that which was broken and that which is beyond repair and accomplishing things that you never imagined possible making you into a new creation in Christ, giving you a new beginning. We often reference him, don't we, as our God of new beginnings. What a remarkable testimony Judah is, that God in his grace uses that old dirt bag to be the father of our Lord Jesus, ultimately. Got a lid on your life right now? Defined by your past? Or have you entered into newness of life? Or some of you believers, you're holding on to baggage. It's time to let it go. Let's pray, please. Before I pray, will you pray, please? Will you ask God to show you how to make application, how to put this together? It's time for us, some of us, to really surrender to God, isn't it? It's time to surrender. And so, Father, take this account of history past and help us somehow to benefit from it as your word feeds us and challenges us and gives us insight we need your grace then to make change to put away the old ways father there are those who are hobbled and crippled by the sins and failures of the past would you give them release and relief today and pour down on them showers of blessing. May they sense your grace and your mercy in a brand new way. And may the result be that they would bow humbly before you and just let their tears wash your feet. Thank you, Father, that 
You are a God of new beginnings. So take us and use us and help us to go from here and walk in obedience as surrendered men and women, boys and girls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.